Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, quadcopter science and Ben Eggleton with the International Year of Light. But first up, here's the news. Eat as much as you like while dieting. A new study from the University of Sydney shows that a high carbohydrate and low protein diet, the exact opposite of the Paleo and Atkins diets, results in mice that live longer and are healthier. Specifically, they have less diabetes and less heart disease. The gold standard for reducing diabetes and heart disease, and generally aging more slowly, is a 40% caloric restriction diet. Unfortunately, apart from being miserable, people also suffer from bone mass, fertility and libido problems, so it's not recommended. The mice in the study had the same health benefits from increasing their carbs and reducing their protein while eating as much as they liked as the mice from the 40% caloric restriction diet. They didn't gain weight. They trialled middle-aged mice on six different diets over eight weeks. The Atkins or Paleo-style diet with low carbohydrates and high protein produced the worst metabolic health as measured by insulin resistance, circulating lipids and cholesterol levels. Team leader Professor Stephen Simpson says a diet consisting of around 15% protein, 60% carbohydrate and 25% fat with generous amounts of low glycemic index and high fibre foods would be good. Although a middle-aged person wanting to lose weight should increase their protein and decrease their fat intake. Sadly, in this diet, sugar does not count as recommended carbohydrate. The paper was published in the journal Cell Reports and was titled Dietary Protein to Carbohydrate Ratio and Caloric Restriction, comparing metabolic outcomes in mice. Pencil and sticky tape, propulsion. Researchers at Nankai University in Tianjin, China, have discovered that a form of graphene moves when light shines on it. Graphene was discovered accidentally by researchers playing with pencils and sticky tape. Its flat structure is very strong and conducts electricity and heat extremely well. The team developed a squidgy material made by fusing crumpled sheets of graphene oxide that they called a graphene sponge. They were cutting it with a laser when they noticed that the material was pushed forward by the beam. The sponge was a few centimetres across, so it's too small a surface area to be pushed by light pressure. Solar sails, which do work by light pressure, are kilometres across. Testing pieces of the graphene sponge in vacuum, they found that not only could they make it move up to 40 centimetres with a blast of laser light, but even focused sunlight would make it move. The team think that graphene absorbs the light and converts it to an electrical charge and eventually the graphene builds up enough charge to start emitting electrons, which propel the graphene sponge. 
They don't know why all the electrons come out in the same direction instead of randomly. The team was able to confirm a current flowing away from the graphene as it was exposed to a laser, suggesting that their hypothesis is correct. This material would be useful for propelling spacecraft faster than solar sails pushed by light pressure alone. The forces are still much smaller than rockets, but there's no fuel. The paper was published with the title Macroscopic and Direct Light Propulsion of Bulk Graphene Material in the archive.org preprint archive. Listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Professor Ben Eggleton from the University of Sydney is Director of QDOS, an ARC Centre for Excellence in Photonics. He'll be speaking on June 12th at Trinity Grammar School in Summer Hill, where I will be moderating questions from the audience and asking a few of my own. 2015 is the International Year of Light. I began by asking Ben, what does that mean? Yeah, well, that's exciting, isn't it? It's the International Year of Light and Light-Based Technologies, which is under UNESCO, United Nations, a year-long celebration of light light-based technology. So we're looking back, we're looking at how much impact light and light-based technologies has had on society. And we're looking forward and thinking about how the future will be transformed by light. And um, this is a global celebration. Uh, the launch was in Paris in January at the UNESCO headquarters. And I was very privileged to attend that event. And all through the year, Across Australia, there are a series of uh, major events, outreach, uh, public lectures. And the year started with a bang uh, with the fireworks and uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge. If you were paying attention, you would have seen the light bulb on the bridge. And if you were really paying attention, you might have seen just before midnight that uh, they laser etched onto the pylon the logo for the International Year of Light. And what was that logo? Actually, it's a lovely logo that captures the essence of, of light, the sun, the colours of, of the rainbow and the unity that light brings to society. So, um, yeah, I mean, a really exciting uh, opportunity. And it's not really just about light. It really is about science and technology. So uh, the initiatives that we're undertaking at the University of Sydney are all about engaging with the public, the broader community, high school kids, teachers, and really about science, technology, maths, promoting um, the discipline, inspiring the next generation of scientists and engineers, and really getting the policymakers to think about the importance of science and technology to society. And that's sort of a pretty good topic for discussion right now, if you think about the national context. Uh, remind policymakers that science and technology has had an enormous impact on our lives um, in health, um, security, um, technology, information, 
you know, to give you a couple of examples, now the laser is roughly speaking 55 years old. The lasers transformed our world in ways that most people don't really understand. Lasers are ubiquitous through our lives. And there was a report that came out of the US National Academy that pointed out that lasers, in the US context, the linchpin of $5 trillion of their economy. Now that's sort of big number. That's not $5 billion, that's $5 trillion. So that's more than Australia's GDP, if I got my numbers right. So lasers underpin basically everything. The internet, the World Wide Web, computers, the storage of information, displays. Think about uh, the photonics, if I can use that term, which is the broader description of laser-based technologies in displays, in healthcare, in defence security, imaging applications, and then looking forward. So I'd like to think that right now we're at a very exciting time in science and technology. We're seeing really the convergence, the intersection of light and nanotechnology. And that's really part of a new revolution that's taking us into the 21st century. And I like to say that photonics is going to really be um, the key to the 21st century. It's going to lead to a faster, smarter, greener world that we live in. Very exciting time for science and a very exciting time to be in photonics, which is my research discipline and light. And what does KUDOS stand for? Yeah, so KUDOS is an acronym. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, It's a great acronym, actually, but it stands for the Centre for Ultra-High Bandwidth Devices for Optical Systems. And really, there are two key words in that acronym, optical systems, optics, optics, and devices. So our research really um, is looking at devices. And by devices, I'm referring to physical structures. At the physical layer, I'm really talking about nanotechnology. And so the types of research that we do at the University of Sydney as part of the KUDOS consortium is develop um, integrated nanoscale circuits for light. So this is really going to blow your mind. So, of course, we're familiar with microelectronics. And if you rip open your iPhone, you'll find a silicon chip that has thousands of transistors that have been etched into that silicon uh, wafer. And that's the backbone of the logic and really... What we're looking at is a photonic chip. And so rather than transistors based on electrons, we're talking about photons, light. And there are some really profound reasons for wanting to do that. Scientifically, it's just absolutely at the frontier of the field. Uh, We're pushing the, the limits on nanotechnology and the theory of electromagnetism at the nanoscale. So... You know, we talk about Maxwell's equations, which are now 150 years old, probably the most beautiful equations that have ever been written down. Well, at the nanoscale, Maxwell's equations sort of break down and we need some new spooky descriptions that uh, push us into some uh, new territory. Really fascinating physics. Uh, Some of the big ideas that emerge, for example, the concept of a metamaterial. So I think if you've been watching the media, you've come across metamaterials. These are artificially engineered nanoscale structures that possess optical properties that are unavailable in nature. So we're talking about artificial magnetism. So why is that a big deal? Big deal. So what is it all about? Well, it turns out these artificial structures that rely on these nanoscopic magnetic resonators yield some pretty um, precedented optics, um, invisibility cloaks. So 
you know, really exciting stuff. And we're integrating these structures onto a chip and we're harnessing the absolutely exquisite optical properties to manipulate light. And not only are we doing fundamental research, but we're applying the technology to a number of different applications, really important applications where we can transform industries, we can transform various really grand challenges. So we're thinking of uh, cybersecurity, we're thinking of telecommunications systems that are greener and faster. We're thinking of applications in uh, defence where uh, photonics is used to provide uh, performance that is orders of magnitude beyond what RF electronics can achieve. We're talking about nanoscale sensors that can detect uh, molecules of methane. And uh, one of the big ideas that we're really excited about is that the silicon chips that are at the basis of your iPhone, remember you take the iPhone lid off, if you smashed your iPhone, you shouldn't do this, but if you did, and you take off the lid, inside that um, iPhone is a silicon wafer, as I said, and that's uh, the logic has been etched into that. Well, it turns out the silicon, uh, which is you know a pretty ubiquitous material, is transparent for light, so we can build photonic circuits into that same silicon platform, so we can start to imagine these nanoscale uh, photonic chips integrated into your iPhone. So what's that about? Well, I can imagine all sorts of uh, amazing technologies. So we've reported very recently a sensor that can detect, for example, methane in the atmosphere, and that sensor is integrated into a silicon chip, and therefore it could be part of your iPhone. And therefore, you could be walking around with your iPhone detecting in real time the environment. And we're all on the cloud. So that's a useful sort of paradigm shifting idea, isn't it? That that information is made available to everyone. And we have absolute transparency on the environment, for example. And that is enabled by breakthroughs in nanotechnology and light-based devices in structures that are compatible with today's microelectronics paradigm. So, you know, all sorts of examples that I'd love to talk about that are just transformative. Another breakthrough that will be reported uh, in two weeks, in fact, at the International uh, Conference on Lasers in Munich, massive conference of thousands of people, and they have every year as part of the conference what's called a post-deadline session. Post-deadlines are papers that are submitted a week and a half before the conference and they represent the absolute breakthroughs in the field. A lot of media interest and every year there are only 12 or 15 papers. This year there are two papers from the University of Sydney. So that's that's pretty exciting. Think about the fact that we're out there and there are two of the 15 from all around the world are from the University of Sydney, from the Kudos Group. One of those papers reports a quantum light source. So what does that mean? Well, a laser source generates a coherent light beam, many, many photons, thousands and thousands of photons. The holy grail is, in fact, a light source that generates photons on demand, individual photons. If I press a button, I generate a photon. If I can do that, I can create a qubit, a quantum bit of information in the form of a photon, and I can use that qubit as the basis of quantum communications, a quantum key that will fundamentally secure my network. Think about cybersecurity. I can imagine scaling that up and building a quantum simulator or a quantum computer even. 
And so at the Munich conference, my uh, postdoc will be presenting an on-ship uh, quantum light source, and it's a record demonstration. So we're very excited about that. And at the same time, my group will be reporting. That's a more technological result. It sounds technological, but in fact, there's a lot of science underpinning that. But um, at the same time, my group is reporting a discovery. Absolute new physics that I think it exemplifies what I find most fascinating about experimental physics. It's not, sometimes we're out there pursuing ideas that have been foreshadowed. So we have already thought about something and we're out there chasing it in the lab. And sometimes along the way you discover things that you didn't anticipate. And my group over the last decade has probably half a dozen examples where we go in the lab and we discover something we did not anticipate. And it's those discoveries that are tremendously exciting. They are the paradigm shifts in the field. They change the field. And so we're reporting the discovery of a new class of an optical soliton. This is a, a wave packet that propagates without changing shape. Um, we haven't even come up with a name for this soliton yet. But it truly is a discovery. And I think it's going to shake up the field at the more fundamental level. So lots of real exciting breakthroughs. And... You know, Australia is without a doubt up there uh, internationally as one of the leading countries in photonics and optics. There's a long history here of great basic science in the universities, of great innovation, of translating science into real-world technology, of spin-offs of companies. And, you know, this is a, a just a, a great year, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really promote light, promote photonics research, promote science, technology, maths for the community. And you know, finally, let me just say, I'll be giving a lecture on Friday, the 12th of June at Trinity Grammar in Sydney, talking about uh, my career and the International Year of Light and what light technologies have done for society and looking forward to the future, uh, thinking about what we're doing at the University of Sydney and talking to the students in particular about careers in science. So hoping to excite some of the kids, some of the amazing kids at this school and other schools in Sydney about uh, science technology and, and what a career path in research might look like and whether you want to follow my example or not, but uh, what it means to do science at university, what is the PhD all about and what's happening in science. And, you know, that should be very exciting and it'll be an amazing year. So please, you know, Google International Year of Light, find out what's going on. Get in contact with us at the University of Sydney and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Well, Ben Eagleton, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor Ben Eagleton from Sydney University talking about the physics of light. Listen next week for part two of the interview and come along on June 12th to hear Ben speak at Trinity Grammar School in Summerhill. I'll be there, so come up and say hello. A friend has suggested that I start a meetup group for diffusion listeners so they can discuss the podcasts and ask questions. Email science at diffusionradio.com if you think this is a good idea and you'd attend such a group. And finally, the science of quadcopters. Helicopters, quadcopters and other multi-rotor aircraft are rotating wing aircraft where the propellers are the wings. If you spin a propeller, then there's an equal and opposite reaction that spins you. How do quadcopters and other multi-rotor aircraft stay stable. They have counter-rotating blades and they use accelerometers and gyroscopes. Quadcopters have four equal propellers 
generating four equal thrust forces in either a plus or X configuration. For an X configuration, one pair of diagonally opposite propellers top left and bottom right spin clockwise, while the other pair top right and bottom left spin counterclockwise. Increasing the speed of the clockwise motors top left and bottom right will make the quadcopter rotate counterclockwise. Increasing the speed of the top right and bottom left counterclockwise motors will make the quadcopter rotate clockwise. To direct the quadcopter to move sideways, the control circuit board changes the speed of a pair of propellers to generate an unequal force in the desired direction. You make it move sideways left by reducing the speed of bottom left while increasing the speed of bottom right, which rolls the frame towards the left so that the aircraft flies left. Controlling the quadcopter gets more complicated when you take into account the fact that the motors will be a tiny bit different due to the manufacturing process. So you have to tune, or trim, to take into account imperfections until the aircraft moves the way you expect. Then there's the fact that the air density and wind will change a lot in unpredictable ways. The solution is to give your system sensors and a microcontroller on board so that you get feedback telling you when the system is behaving in the right way. That allows you to automate the tuning and your aircraft flies the same way regardless of the air density and wind. The sensors are a micro-electro-mechanical system, gyroscope and accelerometer etched into silicon chips. A traditional gyroscope is a weighted spinning disc held in a frame like a top. It spins freely in the frame and the rotational forces act to resist motion at 90 degrees to the forward axis, which is in the direction the wheel is spinning. Like on a bike, you can ride straight in a forward direction, but if you lean sideways, you will turn. There's a great gag where you mount a large gyroscope inside a suitcase, spin it up, and then ask someone unsuspecting to take your bag. As long as they move along the forward axis of the gyroscope, the bag moves normally. But as soon as they try to move it sideways, at 90 degrees to the forward axis, the bag stops in mid-air, as if a giant hand had pulled them back. Not what you'd expect of a suitcase. Some science centres have the suitcase and gyroscope as a demonstration. Gyroscopes can detect changes in rotational motion, the sort of thing aircraft need to know. Microelectromechanical systems gyroscopes don't use spinning wheels. Instead, they use a vibrating structure to detect three degrees of rotational motion. Using various tuning fork shapes, they use the Coriolis force to create an electronic feedback about orientation. The same force that works on a wheel-based gyroscope. Microelectromechanical systems accelerometers work in much the same way with a tiny rod of silicon that moves in response to the g-forces of acceleration, producing an electrical impulse that can be read by the microcontroller on the flight control circuit board. The accelerometer can sense motion in a straight line, giving three extra axes of motion for the flight controller to use to work out what the quadcopter is doing, and what steps need to be taken to make it move the way you're instructing it to move with your remote control signals. A quadcopter only becomes a drone when it can fly independently of its radio remote control, which means it needs GPS and an altimeter to sense its position, 
so that it can follow a path with minimum instructions from the pilot. We'll look into the science of autonomous drones in a future episode. You can buy a tiny quadcopter to support diffusion from www.diffusionradio.com support for $50 including shipping. Happy flying! Happy flying! With new, your product here. Available to all, man is working modern miracles. Breaking the boundaries of time. Nearing the conquest of space itself. In countless ways, directly and indirectly, your product here serves the nation and its citizens plays a vital role in helping every American to achieve a better way of life, enables or helps him to enjoy healthful recreation, have well-trained, obedient pets, make friends, have leisure time for travel, grow bigger crops. Get real smoking satisfaction. Strengthen our national defense. Keep romance from fading away. Enjoy smoother shades. Live in a more comfortable home. Take off ugly fat. Achieve success. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. It's probably good for something. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. 
collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.